Recipes for Life podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Karen Zinn is a registered dietitian and sports nutritionist. Her master's degree was in the area of sports nutrition and her doctoral studies focused on how to achieve sustainable weight loss. Karen currently combines academic work with her own clinical dietetic practice. She believes that this mix of academia and practice keeps her real and at the industry's cutting edge. When LCHF, or low-carb healthy fat, first came onto my radar... I initially dismissed it, Karen explains, but going back over the evidence has convinced me that the current recommendations are based on flawed science. Known as the whole food dietitian, Karen's mission is to influence the dietetic profession to understand the profound and potential improved health benefits of LCHF nutrition. Check out the wonderful books that have been co-authored by Dr. Karen's in with Professor Grant Schofield, What the Fat and What the Fast, with Chef Craig Roger. And to find out more about Karen Zinn, check out her webpage, karenzinn.co.nz. That's C-A-R-Y-N-Z-I-N-N.co.nz. Karen, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast today, Recipes for Life, and I have wanted to get you onto the podcast for some time because you are a dietitian that I look up to and you actually wanted to change the world because you believe that the dietary guidelines probably need a, an overhaul and quickly. Can you tell us why you're so passionate about this and, and the science behind why you believe that we need to look at our dietary guidelines in Australia, New Zealand and other parts of the world? Yeah, hi, yeah. Th thanks, Pete. Great to be on with you uh, today. I am very passionate about the state of play at the moment, and I do think things really need to change. And I think what we need to start off with is by saying that the evidence that has given rise to the existing dietary guidelines are totally flawed. And until people actually come to realize that, we're not going to see any change. So 
you know, what we're telling people at the moment is based on flawed science. And now we need to make amends. We need to change things so we can put everyone right. So tell us how you became so, I guess, so caught up in this. And you are probably one of the strongest voices for change in your industry. And why have you had, I guess, so much uh, resistance to this change also from your industry? It's kind of interesting because I, I'm not really the troublemaking sort. I came through my dietetics degree and, you know, my master's and my PhD and all that kind of stuff, not asking all the right questions, certainly asked some questions, but not all the right questions. And then to cut quite a long story short, I found myself swooped up in this kind of whirlwind of people around me on people, people on the internet and of literature that I was looking at that was suggesting that perhaps all was, was not right. And I don't think I deliberately went out to, as I said, to become a troublemaker, but I just found myself forging ahead with change wanting to happen because you'll know once, once you kind of, get to the bottom of things and you change your ways and you see amazing results, it all becomes so logical and it all starts falling into place. And that's when you can't let it go. And that's when you start being a troublemaker because you've got to stand up for what is right. And I think, you know, we, we've come a long way in, in New Zealand particularly because when we started doing this around six years ago, there was a lot of opposition. And over the years, that opposition has died down a bit, if you like. Mm-hmm. I think the opposition is still there for certain things, but I, I do believe that people are getting and organizations are getting used to the fact that this drive for change is actually not going away. So it's more like, well, what do, what do we need to do now to move forward with it? You actually released and put a rebuttal against when the dietary guidelines, I believe it didn't change last time. And uh, you and your fellow colleagues, which are esteemed professors of nutrition and the like, actually uh, submitted evidence as to why this should be looked at. Can you can you explain that first foray into that world of actually presenting the evidence back to, I guess, the governing body and demanding that what you're presenting be taken seriously? Yeah, that, that was a really interesting time. It was, it was quite funny actually at work. Um, so I work at the Human Potential Center at AUT and along with my colleague, Professor Grant Schofield and several others, we decided that when we got wind of the idea that the Ministry of Health guidelines were being changed, we, we weren't actually invited to put in a submission or anything, but we got wind of it, as, as you do, particularly in a small country. So we thought, you know, we've got nothing to lose, so we're going to put in some evidence-based thoughts on our end. So we pretty much, as an entire research center and, you know, several others around us, we pretty much dropped everything for like two weeks. And we were in there 24 hours of the day on the weekends trying to get all the literature together to put it in a nice, coherent and not antagonistic document to rebut these guidelines. And we did it for uh, the carbohydrate guideline in particular, and we did it for the saturated fat guideline in particular. There was a little bit of around fiber as well, but we basically put the stuff together and submitted it and waited. And a few weeks later, we got a response 
back about the saturated fat angle of it. And they said, can you please provide some more information um, to clarify the points about long-term effects of saturated fat in the diet and safety. So again, we, we put everything together, we sent it through to them, you know, within a couple of days and we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was really the long and the short of it. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it's disappointing that we didn't even get a response to say, you know, thank you for this. We'll take this under, uh, you know, consideration. Nothing was was ever done to that um, or with it. But I believe that it was read and it was considered, and that that I think was good enough mm-hmm. for that time. And perhaps the next time round of change, things might be and will likely be quite different. So that was the initial charge in trying to get things changed. And actually, on a whiteboard one day, Grant and myself actually just came up with a whole bunch of uh, food and nutrition guidelines. We called it the Real Food Guidelines for Real People with Real Evidence or or something. So it was it was a bit of it was a bit of fun, but we never got that through clearly. <laughs> so fast forward a few years or quite a few years since that time, where are you and Professor Grant Schofield and the state of New Zealand's health? And especially because you've got a, a new young female prime minister in there, Jacinda's uh, taken the, the reins, so to speak. Are you optimistic about what can happen in the in the coming years? Look, I am optimistic. I think you have to be optimistic, otherwise you're just beating your head against a brick wall. But you know, I, I can't help but think, you know, when we talk about the, the sugar tax, for example, when we had our FIS conference uh, last year, which was fighting sugar and soft drinks conference, we had we had a representation from all the political parties and they were talking specifically about a tax on sugar. Mm. The National Party didn't actually turn up on the day, which probably said, said a lot. The Labour Party and the Greens Party were both very positive and we got the impression that there was going to be something that was moving in the positive direction, but it's it's just it takes such a long time, and you know we we're one year in, and we're not seeing anything yet, and we you know we know that there are, what about twenty eight countries in the world that have put forward a sugar tax, so we we need to get on with it because before you know it, the government will change, and of course we know that that national is not into doing taxation or anything like that; they are more into education, and we know education doesn't work, but I'm still optimistic. <laughs> well, you have to be. And if we look yeah. at different countries in the world at the moment, I mean, we've got the outspoken author of The Big Fat Surprise, Nina Schultz, pushing very, very hard in the United States for dietary reform with their nutritional guidelines. We've also got Professor Noakes and his team, obviously, in South Africa that is uh, being very publicly in the public eye about changing over the dietary guidelines and and what South Africans are eating. Which countries do you think is going to be the one that will be the catalyst for change and take it on board, or who's doing it right at the moment (laughs) in the world? That's that's a oh, that's a fascinating question. You know, I think that Nina is doing some absolutely fabulous work, and I think that just get the impression that she's making a little bit of traction. And when the American dietary guidelines get changed in a couple of years, again, I think we're going to see a little bit of a. A different story. I, I don't know why I feel positive about this because, of course, the last time the dietary guidelines proposed change, um, there was that massive report that was written by that independent group, and they came up with the 
the the usual story they came up with cholesterol should not be considered a problem saturated fat should not be considered a problem the problem is sugar and carbohydrates and we need to talk about processed foods and the guidelines pretty much um, ignored that and, and just hmm. and went on but since then there's been some murmurings and some political toing and froing in, in the states and i don't know i just think that maybe at the next turn of the dietary guidelines there could be something that changes there and i really believe that if america changes the rest of the world will just lie down and follow. Yeah, I mean, I, and I kind of hope that happens. I think, you know, Tim Noakes is just amazing and he's, he's making huge inroads, but I think his inroads are with the people on the ground and, and yeah. likewise with, with us in New Zealand and you guys in Australia, uh, we're making amazing inroads on the ground. And it's likely that the officials will be the last people who will change. And, and I think particularly now after Tim's very prolonged trial and then appeal and everything like that, it's not about making friends. So I think that that might be South Africa might be second after the States. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it in a perfect world because obviously what you're alluding to there and what I'm taking on board is there potentially can be some changes in the in the coming years, possibly first in the United States and possibly South Africa. But the changes are probably going to be minimal mm. and slight, obviously, because this is how things things happen. So in your perfect world, what would the dietary guidelines look for a population? Obviously, there's differences in opinions on this, but I'd love to hear from, from yours and Professor Schofield's work what you would say for the population because a common rebuttal for any of this, and it was even in the papers last week when they were having a go about uh, our film, The Magic Pill, mm -hmm. is that the dietary guidelines in Australia uh, have been created so that all economic uh, levels and um, socioeconomic um, levels are catered for, so to speak, pardon the pun. <laughs> so they're basically guidelines based around people's income and their earnings as why the current guidelines exist. So I'd like to get your magic pill of what you would love to see, but also take into consideration what is probably best for the population taking it all socioeconomic uh, abilities. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole socioeconomic thing is nonsense because you can actually get a series of guidelines that cater to every single socioeconomic group. And we only need to look at the work that some of our GPs are doing in South Auckland where you get high levels of, of poverty and very low socioeconomic groups. And um, they're making great inroads because they've got the support, they've got the know-how, and they are going real basic. And I think if you have lots of money or, or if you have little money, you can still achieve optimal health. The problem is is all the the cheap, nasty, accessible, toxic food that that is surrounding everyone, and and those temptations make it really tricky. But I, I do think that perfection, you know, we, we tr we're trying to achieve perfection, and the only reason why the guidelines are moving so slowly is that they're coming from what they used to be. Yeah, if you know what I mean. I think if we had to start from scratch. 
we could potentially see something different. And and where I'm going with this is that, you know, you only have to look at the guidelines from Brazil to see something that's potentially positive. And they look more at how we should be eating rather than focusing on, on what we should be eating mm. in, in some of the guidelines. And, you know, they've got three guidelines that refer to processed foods or not having processed foods. So one, they've got um, have minimally processed foods as the basic of your diet. Then they've got number two, limit consumption of processed foods. And number three, avoid consumption of ultra processed foods. I mean, is that, if that's not (laughs) trying to be clear, then I don't know what is. And they've also got guidelines that talk about, you know, shopping and cooking and eating. So, you know, shop in places that offer a variety of natural minimally processed foods. This is one that you'll love, develop exercise and share cooking skills. I mean, it's teaching people, getting a guideline out about what people should do in terms of how they should eat rather than carbohydrates, fat, proteins. Uh-huh. I, I just think all of those things will will work themselves out because, of course, you know, the whole carbohydrate restriction thing is, you know, it's a spectrum. It's a real spectrum. And I think when you are developing some population-based guidelines, it's totally flawed anyway, because how can you guide a population with a carbohydrate range? I mean, it, it's just it's just ridiculous. You, we should forget about ranges and serving sizes from each food group and all that stuff and focus on how to eat, be aware of advertising, marketing, that sort of thing. So I think if we took that sort of angle, we'd probably – I'd like to think we'd get a better outcome. Hmm. One thing I will say, it's it's interesting because, you know, when you criticize the guidelines in relation to our current health status with a a low-carb, healthy-fat kind of edge or bias, people will say things like, oh, the country's in poor health because they don't follow the guidelines. So I'm thinking, well, either way, the guidelines are not working. Either people aren't following them or people are following them and not doing well. So mm. why don't we actually start from scratch and develop a set of guidelines that if people do follow, they'll get good outcomes. And if people don't follow, they'll get good outcomes. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. And we've met before at uh, low-carb conferences where your talks, uh, it just makes so much so much sense. And you have an honesty and a truth about you that uh, really resonates with anybody that listens to you speak. You. The last two books that you've written have been fantastic, What the Fat and also What the Fast. And yeah. your latest one, What the Fast, I'd, I'd love to start there with you and actually get down into a little bit of the nitty-gritty because fasting is something that I do pretty much every single day. Usually my last meal of the day is is around 5 or 6 p.m. when I can, depending on travel and work conditions and situations. And usually my first meal of the day is mid-morning or lunchtime or sometimes even early afternoon, depending on, again, travel, work situations and, and the like. But pretty much every day I, I go anywhere from 14 to 16 to even 18 hours without eating. And a lot of people find that really strange. I, it was, I was at the butcher store yesterday. And I had a slice of terrine and it must have been 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> and, and it was beautiful. It had chicken liver and it had pastured pork in it. It was a, a beautiful French charcuterie terrine. And I asked the guy for a slice of it. And he goes, oh, what are you going to do with it? I said, this is my breakfast. And it was three <laughs> in the afternoon. And, and there was a lady, lady standing next to me and she says, didn't your mother ever teach you that the most important meal of the day 
was breakfast in the morning time and that you should be looking after yourself. And, and I just couldn't help. But um, for me, I mean, I didn't take offense, obviously, when she, she was coming from her place of good. But the notion that we need to be eating first thing in the morning is so ingrained in people. And that's why I love your book, What the Fast, is a brilliant introduction for people and a brilliant guidebook for people that are really fascinated about how our bodies work. So how did you come to write this profound book? And tell us about the science behind it, because everyone wants to know and understand this. Yeah, sure. Just before I talk about what the fast, I think actually there, there should be something in the population-based guidelines about not necessarily having to eat every two or three hours because that's something that is often emphasized, you know, eat regular meals and eat balanced regular meals. Mm. Like really it should all be just about getting enough micronutrients and whenever you want to get that, then so be it. But this emphasis on having to eat every two or three hours I'm having to keep the metabolism up. I mean, that's nonsense. And, you know, breakfast being the most important meal of the day, clearly that must have been coined by someone with the last name of Kellogg's or <laughs> someone equivalent. So it's a very, very industry-driven thing, you know, that need to eat every two or three hours. So, you know, for us, what the fast was, again, we just fell into it, it was the natural progression from our What the Fat book. Because anyone who knows about eating reduced carbohydrates in their diet with healthy fats um, will know that they feel satiated a lot of the time. They feel full and they just eat when they're hungry and don't eat when they're not hungry. So it naturally lends itself to missing a meal. Mm. And again, at the same time, you know, the, the modern fasting literature was, was coming through. So, you know, Walter Longo's work and, you know, Jason, Jason Fung kind of put it on the modern fasting map and, you know, various others. And, you know, when you, when you delve into it, you realize that fasting has been around since the beginning of time, literally, um, yes. you know, for physical, for spiritual. Um, it, it's nothing new, but it's quite cool how it's been modern, modernized a little bit. And, you know, again, being totally honest about the evidence, there is not strong human evidence um, for all these fasting benefits because the studies just haven't been done. There is reasonably good animal evidence, but there is incredibly good biological evidence, you know, like proof of concept stuff. And that is the most provocative, particularly around things like apoptosis and autophagy, which is like the gold, the golden word at the moment. Mm. And for those who might not know, autophagy is, is a state, it's a natural state where the cells in your body, the ones that have maybe passed their use by date and, and have done what they've needed to do, they're not really functional. They have the ability to self eat really. They, they kind of eat themselves up mm -hmm. and the cell itself gets cleaned up. And it's really provocative when you, when you look at the science and the cell biology around it. And when you learn about the cell, when you go through university and you, you know, you learn about the Golgi bodies and the lysozymes and, and all those things, they, they seem so sort of intangible. But then, you know, years later, when you read the science, it kind of all, again, the pieces of the puzzle get, get put together. 
and it makes so much sense. Mm. And the reason why we like the whole fasting thing is, is really to come up with a really good balance of feeding the cells and leaving them alone. Because I think when you leave them alone, this is when the powerful stuff happens. And I think, you know, the devil in the detail and the obvious question is, well, how long do you leave them alone for? What's <laughs> the optimal to get your best benefit? And we have come up with a framework or protocol called super fasting. And again, there's no one specific protocol, but we have coined the term super fasting as a result of having an in-depth look of, at the literature and the evidence and the biology. And yeah, we've come up with something that we believe will work with the biology and also work with the reality of people's lives. Hmm. So so basically our super fasting protocol is is really it is a potent synergy of eating low carb healthy fat foods yes. along with not eating for pretty much a, a couple of days a week with a meal in between. So we say start on Sunday and have a 24-hour fast and then have a have a rich super meal a nutrient packed meal at night on Monday night. Yep. Repeat it on Tuesday have a meal on Tuesday night and then eat low carb, healthy fat for the rest of the week and then take your foot off the brake and, you know, have a, an ice cream or whatever you want to do on the weekend. Yep. And this little framework really, we really like it because the biology says that in the morning you are at your least hungry. Yes. So don't eat. And it's really interesting. You know, I've had clients who've come to see me going, I don't eat breakfast, so convince me why I need to eat breakfast. And I've done that over the years. And now I feel like I need to write little notes to them in apology mm. because people naturally work these things out. They're just not hungry in the morning. So, you know, don't eat. <laughs> and then, <laughs> So then that happens on Monday, that happens on Tuesday. And then that, for a lot of people, for people who do it properly, that naturally draws them closer to or gets them further into nutritional ketosis, which is that normal, natural, healthy state for the body to be in, um, which is fat-burning state, and it's a, it's a state where your brain is at um, its peak mental clarity, which we think is a great thing for Monday and Tuesday, which are the two days we suggest for super fasting. The beautiful thing about this is you're setting up, a, I guess, a meal plan or a life plan, but what I tend to feel is that after you start adopting this low-carb, healthy-fat approach and getting into nutritional ketosis and cycling in and out, as, as you talk about, is that by default, you end up following this program without even thinking about it. It becomes a, a normal way of life. So as you say, you start with the Sunday and the Monday and the Tuesday, but probably three, four, five weeks down the track, it will all sort of start blending into each other and you and you won't be eating the breakfast and you'll possibly just feel like eating the, the yeah. two meals a day or sometimes the one meal and sometimes the three meals and yeah. it, you just listen to your body. You're absolutely spot on. And that's what we try and emphasize in the book is that we've come up with this framework and it's just a framework. And we say, you know, for people who are already doing LCHF and, and you're missing a meal and you're kind of habitually fat burning and used to it, then why don't you try the super fasting protocol for a month? So kickstart it. And then during that time, you know, pay attention to how you feel, pay attention to, you know, what happens. And as you say, your body will guide you there um, for you to figure out what you want from this long term. And it might not be a Monday, Tuesday long term. It might be, as you say, missing breakfast most days and having a, you know, a beautiful nutrient rich slice at um, two o'clock in the afternoon. 
So mm. it's about people working it out, really, and, and working it out safely. One of our key drivers of putting out what the fat and also what the fast is to guide people by their hands as to how to do this safely and for it to be a sustainable um, way of, of, of living rather than what the critics like to think, which is, you know, fair diets. Yeah. And you actually write that in your book and you, you talk about the contraindications that if people suffer or have, why potentially this is, is not the right approach unless you have medical supervision and you talk to your, your health professional about it. And you also talk about in the book having a, a three-day fast. And this is popping up more and more on the radar. And I think you describe it perfectly because you actually <laughs> you go through the study yourself. And that's what I love about your book is, is your real-life personal experiences by adopting this, is that we need to be very careful that people don't push things too far. But the three-day fast is something that I'm fascinated by, especially after uh, reading the work of Dr. Jason Fung and also people like Jimmy Moore that are self-experimenters as well. Talk to us about that three-day fast because it's an interesting concept and a lot of people would, would think it's uh, really extreme. But I want to take get your take on it, please. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. And I did it for several reasons. The first reason I did it was because I refused to tell my clients to do anything that I haven't done. Um, so that was the one thing. Um, number two is we were writing a book on fasting and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to get into it. And actually I wrote my section during that three day fast. Mm-hmm. And, um, my co-authors think that I was incredibly productive. I don't know. Maybe I was just <laughs> in a place where no one disturbed me. I'm not entirely sure, but, um, it was, you know, it's the most, psychologically fascinating experience that anyone can do that is kind of new to it. I would certainly not recommend people do a three-day fast without them having dabbled with fasting before beforehand, like mm-hmm. a super fasting or, you know, at least a 24-hour. And I was, to be honest, I was I was dreading it. And part of the reason I was dreading it is because I was sort of psyching myself up to I just thought it's just going to feel uncomfortable. It it was just absolutely fascinating because in those three days, I felt hungry for about 15 minutes. True story. Mm, Wow. So, so physically, it was actually really, really easy to do and quite freeing actually because you've got so much more time, particularly in the evening. It comes to 6:30. It's like, well. Well, what am I going to do now? Hmm. <laughs> There's no dinner to prepare. Um, You've got all this extra time yeah, to do things. I, I know. So it was, um, so it was physically really easy. Um, it was psychologically, it was, it was quite, I don't want to say stressful because that's not really the word. It was, it was challenging psychologically because, and you'd appreciate this. I enjoy food yeah. and I enjoy cooking and eating good food. And, um, to go without that for three days is a challenge. But of course, you know that it's, it's there. And after my three days, when I prepared the meal, I actually wasn't hungry at all. And I could have gone for another 12 hours quite easily, hmm. but I was psychologically ready to eat. So that was that was a very interesting experience. And it's something that I would like to do and will do um, at least two to three times a year because wow. I like the idea of – because for me it's not about weight loss or blood sugar control or anything like that. For me it's about living – um, as long as I can for as healthy as I can. So anything I can do to strengthen my immune system, to ward off illness and to encourage 
optimal aging, I'm going to do it. Mm. And if it's, if it's not eating for three days every now and again, it's a, it's a very small sacrifice to make. Even if it's for a day or even two days, it, it all adds up, I guess. It is. And, and for a day, um, you know, 24 hour fast is super easy to do. All you need is a busy day at work and, and you're done. <laughs> really easy. <laughs> I know about. I know about them. We should just clarify as well. Uh, I want to just bring up children here because obviously mm-hmm. people, some people listen to the podcast or read information and they've got a young family and all of a sudden they go, oh, I should do that for my kids too. So I just want to get the <laughs> clarification from you that yeah. this probably isn't appropriate for children of a certain age or babies in the whole Very thing. Very nice. Because next thing it'll, it'll be Pete Evans oh. promotes fasting for babies or something with <laughs> a headline or something, you know. Most likely. Okay, so it's official. We are saying that anyone who is considered a child, so anyone under 18 years of age, is not to do um, structured fasting. It's not for you. Wait until you need to when you're an adult. I mean, I do think that children, I mean, you would know, they might miss a meal here and there because they're playing, which is awesome. They're out, you know, doing physical activity and whatever. But in the natural kind of uh, cycle of the day, that's absolutely fine. But you don't want to have anything structured. They're growing beings. So let them go, you know. The same with, I've had an email recently about a woman who's breastfeeding um, and she's thinking about fasting. I'm like, no, 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 no. When you're pregnant, when you're breastfeeding, just get on with it Mm. this is a very short time in in this big scheme of your life you've got plenty other um, times plenty opportunity to get into fasting this is not the time for it yeah get the nutrients that's that's, yeah the interesting thing is is that you know when you look at pregnant women and you know they get morning sickness and they end up fasting anyway i don't believe it's going to be detrimental but there's just no reason to do it purposefully no reason at all yeah Fair call. I want to take a step back because you just mentioned before that you'd like to write a little apology to certain people that you've uh, advised over the years about needing to eat breakfast. And it was about a week ago when I actually got a uh, post sent to me on my social media from a dietitian and said, you're a joke, Pete Evans, and everything you stand for is a joke. Mm. And the line that obviously struck a chord for this person and they needed to express it was that I didn't go to university for six years to learn the stuff that I've learned and be told that it's out of date or it's useless or or whatever it is. And I understand why potentially I can, and others can cause this issue for people because no one wants to think they've gone to university and wasted their time (laughs) because, because obviously you've learned a great deal through your dietetics training and, and so has this person. So, how do you see the future of the education system for people in nutritional health services, such as dietitians and nutritionists and doctors for that matter? Where do you think the future of that's going to go for the education to change, to better align with these sort of concepts of fasting and, and not everything in moderation and also that the metabolism that we've got to be eating every couple of hours for this, that and the other? How is that going to happen well, that's a that's a biggie. That that is a biggie, and that, but it's interesting because it's on everyone's lips at the moment. And I think I firstly I think that putting comments on people's social media pages like that is absolutely inexcusable and and shocking. And I've had a few myself actually. Um, I had one one recently that said you know I should be deregistered and all this kind of stuff. And I just think that that there's there's absolutely no no place for that at all. But I want to be the devil's advocate for one moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to be 
uh, I don't want to say that dietitian because I'd never be that rude, but I used to be a conservative dietitian who used to think the same way, particularly about personal trainers because personal trainers used to teach nutrition and talk to their clients about nutrition all along, despite the fact that in their you know, organizational reps guidelines that says you, you can't design diets for people. Yet they did it. So yeah. I would I would be that person that would try and oppose that and complain about that. And I think it I don't know if it comes with a bit of maturity or comes with being honest with yourself or when you realize that there is no threat to your job because really that that's really what it's all about. Um dietitians feel threatened and I can mm. and I can see why. Yeah. But when you realize that there is plenty of work to go around yeah. and when you realize that study these days is very different to study in the old days, like there was never the internet like it is today. That I know people who don't have any qualification but would be a million times smarter than I could ever hope to be, yet I've got all the qualifications in the world. Mm. So it's what, what do you do with that information? What do you do? I do think that the nature of study is going to change, particularly tertiary study, and it's changing already with, yeah. with courses that are run with online courses. I think the nature of university courses are going to change over time, like come to university for three years and sit in a classroom and listen to one person tell you stuff, that's already changing and it's going to change substantially um, over the next 10 years. It's going to be an absolute groundbreaker. Where it goes is, mm. is interesting. Look, you know, I'd like to think that qualifications don't die, but I, I'd also like to think that there is a place for people who are self-taught to be involved in changing the health of the nation, really. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that, that there is a place. And I think, you know, the dietitians do give you a hard time. But what they fail to realize is that because of you, there are hundreds and thousands um, and hundreds of thousands of people who never used to cook who now cook. And, mm. and that, that basic statement is just profound, you know? So it's really unfair to take people down because I think everyone has an important role to play. Yes, of course, we need to make sure that we convey correct information. We do. And, and that, and that, that is fundamental. Mm. But again, I will say that about Five years ago on national TV in New Zealand, there was a prominent dietitian, and I, I won't mention, <laughs> I won't mention their name, but a prominent dietitian came on to one of the current affairs program interview about nutrition. And they said that, um, you know, low carb diets, ketosis is a dangerous state to be in. Wow. Yeah, on national TV. So I think it's important, uh, you know, they've come around now, of course, but I mm. think it's important to, acknowledge that people make mistakes. Yeah. I've said some shocking things to my students along those same lines about low carb diets. They, you know, they cause ketosis is bad for you and you get bad breath that can cause, you know, it's, oh, I, I shudder to think, but I think hindsight's a wonderful thing. Well, no, maybe it's <laughs> not a, a wonderful thing when I, I'm a, yeah. it's an embarrassing thing really. <laughs> but I think, you know, with the informed consumer nowadays, Things are going to change. And if we try and oppose it, um, we will be weeded out. We need to work with it because we're all working towards the same good, which is health for everyone. 
We are. Karen, I have loved having you on the podcast and I love your honesty and that you stand in your truth. And I just can't wait to see what you and your team and your associates get to do over the coming decades. And because I, I know New Zealand is going to be very, very grateful for the work that you're doing. I would love to finish the podcast by asking you something not on a nutritional level as far as food goes, but what is one of your ingredients for your recipe for life that you love to do, whether it's every day, every week or every year that you'd love to share with the audience? Because we know that it's more than just food that we need for a healthy and happy mm. lifestyle. Mm, interesting. Um, it's definitely more than food that we need for sure. Picking one thing. You can pick a few things, but just... Oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, all, all the usual tick the boxes, you know, like sleep and stress and blah, 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 blah. But I really think that if more people can spend more time laughing, that would go a long way. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Oh, no wonder we get along so well. <laughs> I think that is a, a wonderful podcast. I think it's this is a much-needed message, and I'm so grateful that you've uh, given us your time today and also shared your wisdom with everybody. And uh, We love you, Karen, welcome. and keep doing what you're doing. And send my love to uh, Professor Grant Schofield as well. And I will. Check out What the Fast and also What the Fat. They're tremendous books. And uh, Go New Zealand. Great. Thanks, Peter. And you keep up the good work too. <laughs> Thank you. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical, or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast. <laughs>